Hi, this is Chris Date, and you are listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 8, Walking Contradiction. The topic of this episode are what appear to be contradictions in scripture. Such alleged contradictions are used by theological liberals to argue against the inerrancy of scripture, as well as by skeptics and atheists to argue against the overall reliability of the Bible. We're going to get into all of that, but I have a few things to talk about before I do. First, you might notice a difference in the sound quality of my voice. I certainly hope that you do, given the amount of money that um, has been spent on this new microphone that I'm speaking into right now. It's a Blue Microphones Yeti. Uh, You can find more information at bluemic.com forward slash yeti or on amazon.com where this microphone has received a great number of very positive reviews. Um, And so so far what I've heard uh, from my voice is uh, very pleasing uh, in contrast with the voice as recorded by my Xbox 360 Rock Band microphone. So I'm pleased with what I've got despite the enormous size of this beast in front of me. I suppose that's why it's called a Yeti. But anyway, you'll have to give me some feedback and let me know if you agree that the sound quality's improved. The other thing that you might notice is that whereas in episodes past I transitioned directly from my intro music into the title song for the episode, the format's changed up a little bit this episode. This is the result of some feedback that I got from a friend of mine and from my wife, both of whom said that uh, transitioning in that way was a little abrupt and maybe um, jarring. I don't know. Um, and my wife had a great recommendation for a change in format, and you'll see that uh, here in a couple minutes. Um, again, let me know what you think. I posted this on my blog asking for feedback about how I could switch up the, the music. Um, I didn't get any feedback, so uh, if you like what you hear, let me know. If you don't like what you hear, let me know, and hopefully we can settle into something before two more, too many more episodes are recorded so that uh, I don't have some sort of jarring change later in the future. Now, I have a prayer request that I hope you'll consider. I've recently entered into a discussion or debate over email with a friend's sister who is an atheist and who has challenged me on the Christian faith. Uh, it's the first time that I'm trying out, in, in any real sense, the presuppositional approach that I learned from Psy in episode 3, and it's gone well so far. I think that the uh, arguments are powerful. I think that uh, the questions I'm asking, I don't think that she has really good answers to. However, um, you know, ultimately, persuasive arguments is not what's going to win her heart. Um, we Christians don't change hearts, God does, and ultimately it's God's decision as to whether or not to open her heart and mind to the gospel. So I would just ask that you listeners would pray for me and this friend sister of mine. I'm going to keep her anonymous, I'm not going to mention her name, but please do pray for her and I'll keep you updated as to how that conversation goes as we move forward. I might even share some of the comments so you can see how, um, how I've learned to discuss the issue in case you find it helpful. Finally, I'm going to play a promo for a resource I enjoy. And again, I don't have a prepared promo to play that was supplied to me, so I've pieced one together, and I hope you enjoy. Stay tuned. Renewing Your Mind with Dr. R.C. Sproul is next. And our Quorum Deo thought for today. Let me say to you, dear friends, that you may not want Christ. You may not want to be bothered with religious things. 
But dear friend, you need Christ. You know you're not perfect. You know that you're not holy. And you know that God is holy. And the biggest problem you will ever face in your existence is how to reconcile that problem. And what Christianity is all about is that righteousness has been achieved by somebody else for me and for all who put their faith in Him. God provides what you need. R.C. Sproul is one of my absolute favorite teachers and theologians. I even had the pleasure of meeting him at a conference on the resurrection not long ago. I even got him to chuckle a little bit. His teaching is powerful, challenging, and true to the Word of God, and I very highly recommend his ministry. You can subscribe for free to his podcast, Renewing Your Mind, at www.ligonier.org. That's L-I-G-O-N-I-E-R.org. And with that, let's move into the topic of this episode. In the previous episode, we looked at the doctrine of sola scriptura. We discovered that the Bible claims that it contains the very words of God breathed out onto the pages of scripture by men who were inspired by him to write precisely that which he wanted them to write. Therefore, since God is truth, and since his word is truth, we can trust what the Bible says. And it, can, it serves as the authority against which we test all other teachings. However, theological liberals who will interpret scripture in unorthodox ways will point to seeming contradictions in the Bible, uh, where one part of scripture says one thing and another part of the Bible seems to contradict that, saying another. They'll point to this as evidence that we need to uh, be more liberal <laughs> to, uh, as far as how we interpret the scripture, that we can't treat it as being the inerrant word of God. Similarly, atheists and skeptics will point to such seeming contradictions as evidence that the Bible isn't reliable and, and that it's not the word of God. The, I, I can't count the number of times that when I've spoken to atheists or heard atheists talking about Christianity, they'll say, well, the Bible's full of contradictions and so therefore you can't trust it. So what I'd like to do today, and, and we'll do this in the future as well, is look at some of the contradictions that theological liberals and atheists point to uh, as evidence against the Bible's reliability. Before I do that, though, I think there's something worth pointing out, and I think that you should point this out if you're challenged by skeptics uh, about uh, contradictions in the Bible. What I want to point out is that objecting to the reliability of Scripture based on a logical contradiction assumes that logic is valid. Uh, this is something we talked about in episode three, so as a refresher, I would encourage you to listen to that episode if you haven't already. But the point here is that objecting to contradictions, uh, contradictions in Scripture assumes that logic is valid in all cases, uh, and, it, and that it serves as an objective standard against which to test something like Scripture. But an atheistic worldview cannot account for such an objective standard. The laws of logic are immaterial, they're objective, they're absolute, they apply everywhere and in every circumstance, uh, and none of th these things can be accounted for in an atheistic worldview. They're merely assumed. 
So the very first thing that I would do if somebody challenged me on contradictions in scriptures, I would I would ask them to account for the validity of logic when it comes to their objections. Um, and, you know, again, go back to episode three and listen. You can also check out other presuppositional apologetics resources. Um, and maybe I'll try to include some in future episodes. But anyway, that would be the starting point for me. And what I would point out is that a biblical worldview, one which presupposes the truth of the Bible, does account for the validity of logic because it's an expression of God's mind. And it presupposes that humans have the capacity to use logic properly because we're created in the image of God. So with that presupposition, my goal, and I think the goal of any biblical Christian, is going to be to demonstrate that what seem at first blush to be contradictions in Scripture aren't in fact such contradictions. So, we're going to begin with what I think is a very common, very popular uh, seeming contradiction um, pointed to as objections against the reliability of Scripture. And it's in the very first two uh, chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. The claim is often made that chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis depict two contradictory accounts of creation. The Skeptics Annotated Bible puts it this way. In the so-called first account, humans were created after the other animals. And the website will quote Genesis chapter 1, verses 25 to 27, which reads, And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good, and God said, Let us make man in our image, so God created man in his own image. But in the so-called second account, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 19, humans are created before the other animals. It quotes, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him an helpmeet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. So this is the first uh, alleged contradiction that Genesis chapter 1 depicts humans created after animals, whereas the second chapter of Genesis depicts them being created before the other animals. But the objection doesn't end there. They'll also point to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, which they say depicts the first man and woman being created at the same time. Uh, that verse reads, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And then they'll point to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 22, uh, in which it appears as though the man was created first, and then the animals, and then the woman from the man's rib. That passage reads, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him an helpmeet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman, and brought her unto the man." And here's one more, not listed at the Skeptics Annotated Bible Online, but I've heard pointed to. Uh, some skeptics will point to an apparent contradiction in the order in which humans and plants were created. In the so-called first account, plants are created on day three in verse 11 of chapter one, which reads, Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them, and it was so. Humans, on the other hand, are not created until day 6 in verse 26, which reads, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. But in the alleged second account of creation, the first man is created before plants. Verse 5 in Genesis chapter 2 tells us, Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. 
And then in verse 7, man is created. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Then in verses 8 and 9, God creates plants. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight uh, and good for food. So, <clears throat> here are three alleged contradictions between chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, which are perceived by some to be two separate accounts of creation. Are the skeptics right? Are these two chapters of Genesis contradictory? <clears throat> and does this count, uh, cast doubt on the inerrancy of Scripture? I don't think so, and I'm going to do my best to explain why. But I would encourage you to check out my show notes, as I'll be including a link to a blog post I wrote some time ago that answers this objection in more detail. Now, the last objection, or last contradiction that we looked at was that Genesis 1 depicts plants being created before man, whereas Genesis 2 depicts plants being created after man. Now, if you take a closer look at Genesis chapter 2, what it says did not exist before man, at least in this context, was any plant or shrub of the field. That Hebrew word there is a reference to a limited area of flat land suitable for agriculture. So it's not talking about any plant in general. It's talking about, very specifically, cultivated plant life, agriculture. And why? Because we see in, uh, in this verse that there was no man to cultivate the ground. This wouldn't preclude other kinds of plants, not cultivated agriculture, from having existed before God created man in Genesis chapter 2. So there's no, there's no uh, contradiction there. But somebody might object to this, saying that verse 9 says that the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food after he created man. Whereas in Genesis chapter 1, on day 3, God created the fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind. This would appear to be still a genuine contradiction between these two chapters of Genesis. And while I think that there are a couple of different answers that I've seen offered up anyway, I believe the best answer is one that is found in answering the other alleged contradictions between these so-called creation accounts. So we're going to look at that now. While several translations of the second chapter of Genesis render the original in such a fashion as to suggest chronological order of creation, others don't. Take, for example, the New International Version. Uh, verses 7 and 19 read, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the, earth, of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. The words as rendered by the New International Version are fully compatible with the first chapter of Genesis. God had planted a garden and had formed the birds and land animals. Then he creates Adam, places him in the garden that he had formed, brings the animals that he had formed to him, and finally he creates Eve. Thus the the two sequences of events are in harmony. Plants, then birds, then land animals, then man, then woman. And this hints at something. Notice that in verse 8, God planted a garden in a specific geographic location and placed the man there. That's in stark contrast to the creation of vegetation described in the first chapter of Genesis, which appears to be across the whole earth. Thus, God is simply causing certain kinds of vegetation, which he had already created outside of this geographic area, to grow in this specific garden. Then, with a specific purpose in view, namely the naming of all birds and land animals in an effort to find a suitable companion, God forms examples of all the creatures he had already created prior to creating Adam and presents them to him in this specific geographic area. 
After all, how long would it have taken for every kind of land animal created to make its way by foot to this one small garden wherever it was located? It certainly would be, it would be more time efficient for God to simply form examples of previously created animals right there in the garden for Adam to name. So it's perfectly reasonable to see the first chapter of Genesis as a chronology of the whole creation week, with the second chapter sort of zooming in, temporally speaking anyway, on day six, and geographically speaking, on the Garden of Eden. There he creates man and places him in a garden. He plants in that garden what he had already planted elsewhere, except for the tree of knowledge and uh, the tree of life. And he forms wildlife in that garden, which he had already formed elsewhere. There simply is no contradiction because they are not two separate accounts of creation. Now, the next contradiction that we're going to look at, I call one donkey or two. And again, I'll include a link to a blog post where I explain this contradiction in better detail. In Matthew's account of the triumphal entry, the gospel writer is alleged to have misinterpreted biblical prophecy and tells us that Jesus sent his disciples to fetch a donkey and its foal and rode into Jerusalem upon them both at the same time. Mark's, Luke's, and John's gospels, on the other hand, depict Jesus as riding into Jerusalem on a single donkey, interpreting the fulfilled prophecy correctly. This, the skeptic will argue, is a clear example of two mutually exclusive accounts, and therefore one or both accounts must not be the inerrant word of God we Christians claim it is. What we'll see, however, is that Matthew did not misunderstand the prophecy he claimed was being fulfilled, and his account does not contradict the others. He merely chose to relate details that the other authors omitted. The prophecy Matthew was claiming was being fulfilled is found in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you! He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, skeptics will rightfully point out that the author here is making use of Hebrew parallelism, which is a, poetic, uh, a way of poetically describing the same thing in two parallel ways. And here's another example from Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your word is described as being a lamp, parallel to a light. And the word is unto my feet, which parallels my path. In the same way, the animal upon which the king rides in this prophecy of Zechariah is called a donkey, which is parallel to a colt, the foal of a donkey. One animal is referred to twice. But it is possible that Zechariah's prophecy inherently implies the inclusion of the colt's mother. A young foal, particularly an unbroken one, would likely require the presence of its mother if expected to bear and be directed by a rider. In fact, consider what Mark and Luke record. Mark, in chapter 11, 1 and 2, says, He sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And Luke says the same thing. So Mark and Luke confirm what is potentially implied by Zechariah's prophecy of the king riding upon the foal of a donkey. Namely, that the young donkey was unbroken, unaccustomed to being ridden. And it would seem likely then that the mother would accompany it in order to keep it calm and willing to go where directed by its rider. Matthew's account, therefore, seems to be more than a perfectly legitimate interpretation of Zechariah's prophecy. Indeed, it seems, ex it seems likely that that's exactly what happened. But here's the thing. Even if Matthew was accurate, uh, his account seems to contradict the accounts recorded by Mark, Luke, and John, all of whom make no mention of the foal's mother. They mention only him riding upon the foal itself. 
but a close examination of these passages reveal, reveals that there's no contradiction. Skeptics like to portray these other accounts of the triumphal entry as saying that Jesus sought out and rode upon specifically one and only one donkey. But none of these authors say that. None of them contain the word one or only or alone or anything like that. Now some might think this is a cop-out, but I don't think it is. And allow me to give a hypothetical story to illustrate what I'm saying. Imagine for a moment that many years ago you were walking down the street and you ran into your mother and her sister, your aunt. You and your aunt are not close, and so while you and your mother chatted it up in lively conversation, you, exchange, you exchanged sorry, few words with your aunt. In recounting this meeting to others today, you remember quite clearly the conversation you had with your mother and include in your account some of the things about which you talked. If you recall your aunt's presence at all, it's not likely something you'll include in the story. You met your mother and had an enjoyable chat. And would you be lying by omitting your aunt's presence? Are you suggesting that she was absent? Well, the obvious answer to both questions is no. But let's say that you were with your father those years ago when you happened upon your mother and your aunt. Your father, unlike you, is close to both women. And though you left after speaking with your mother, your father remained and continued to speak to both her and her sister. So today, while you're telling others you met up with your mother, your father is meanwhile telling the same story from his perspective, including the presence of both women. Now, here's the, uh, here's the important question. Does his story contradict yours since his includes your aunt and yours does not? No, of course not. So we can see then that witnesses to an event perceive events from their respective points of view. And this is vital in understanding many of the so-called contradictions in scripture. To one person, some detail may be important and thus included when telling the story, but that same detail may be of little to no consequence to another witness and thus omitted from his account. Two such people are not contradicting each other, they are merely giving those details that stood out to them. But there's still one challenging question left to be answered, and that is how could Jesus have possibly ridden two donkeys at the same time? Let's look at the text again, and this is in uh, the, New King, the New King James Version in Matthew chapter 21, verses 6 to 7. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and, he, and set him on them. My preferred translation is the NASB, but it easily answers this question, and so I've instead quoted the New King James Version to illustrate the problem. Matthew tells us Jesus' disciples laid their clothes upon the donkey and her foal, and then set Jesus upon them, quote, this has caused many scoffers to laugh at the text, asking how, you know, <laughs> or, or saying Jesus must have been some sort of rodeo trick rider. But a, a very simple answer to this question is that the them at the end of the verse is not the donkey and the foal, but the clothes. I mentioned that my preferred translation solves the problem, and here it is. And brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. The Amplified Bible reads the same, as does the American Standard Version. If you look closely at the order of the Greek words, which comprise the original sentence, their clothes is the specified noun just prior to the them upon which they sat Jesus. It seems natural, then, to translate the passage in such a fashion as to have Jesus placed upon the cloaks which the disciples had placed upon the donkeys. This answers the problem, because it's the clothes, not Jesus himself, which are said to have been placed upon both donkeys. Jesus could have sat upon the colt, using those clothes laid upon it as a saddle. Matthew Henry wrote in his commentary on this passage, saying, The meanness and contemptibleness of the beast Christ rode on might have been made up with the richness of trappings, but those were, like all the rest, such as came next to hand. They had not so much as a saddle for the ass, 
but the disciples threw some of their clothes upon it, and that must serve for want of better accommodations. So again, not only are these passages not contradictory, but it doesn't actually depict Jesus as riding upon two donkeys at the same time, so there's, no, there's nothing to laugh at here. Finally in this episode, we're going to look at three alleged contradictions in Scripture surrounding Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. I'll summarize these seeming contradictions first, and then I'll address them each individually. First, in the book of Acts, Luke records his account of Paul's conversion, in which his companions did not hear Jesus, and also records Paul's descriptions of the event later, in which Paul says his companions did hear him. Second, in Luke's account, Paul's companions stand speechless, but in Paul's, they fall to the ground. Third, we're told by Luke that Paul didn't see Jesus on the road, but in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul claims he did see Jesus. Let's look at that first one, well, first. Luke records Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, as well as Paul's account of his experience later. And in his account, Paul appears to contradict Luke's depiction. In Acts 9-7, Luke says that the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice of Jesus, but seeing no one. Whereas in Acts 22, verse 9, Paul says in the KJV, And they that were with me saw indeed, indeed the light, and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. In Luke's record of what Paul experienced, his companions heard the voice of Jesus, but when Paul tells others about what happened to him, he says his companions didn't hear the voice. But you'll notice that I quoted the KJV again, inciting the second passage, and the reason is because the NASB and some other translations render it slightly differently. They record Acts 22 verse 9 as saying, And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Other translations like the NIV, the Amplified, the New Living Translation, the English Standard Version, and the New Century Version all render this verse similarly. The implication is that whereas Luke says Paul's companions heard the voice of Jesus, Paul tells his listeners that his companions didn't understand the voice they heard. This, obviously, would solve the apparent contradiction quite easily. Now, some skeptics aren't going to accept this. They'll write something like this, which comes from New Testament contradictions. Some translation of the Bible try to remove the contradiction in Acts 22.9 by translating the phrase quoted above as did not understand the voice. However, the Greek word akou is translated 373 times in the New Testament as hear, hears, hearing, or heard, and only in Acts 22.9 is it translated as understand. In fact, it is the same word that is translated as hearing in Acts chapter 9, verse 7, quoted above. The word understand occurs 52 times in the New Testament, but only in Acts 22.9 is it translated from the Greek word akou. This is an example of Bible translators sacrificing intellectual honesty in an attempt to reconcile conflicting passages in the New Testament. Now I find this claim somewhat amusing, because it's the same author who records both the conversion and Paul's description of the conversation. As the Tecton Education and Apologetics Ministry puts it, Luke was not stupid. It strains credulity to suggest that he made an error such as is suggested here, and didn't even realize that it was there. I agree, and I think that we should at minimum acknowledge the possibility that there is no contradiction, since the apparent contradiction is introduced by the same author in the same book. And despite skeptics' claim to the contrary, the Greek word can refer to understanding by hearing. It's used in John chapter 8, verse 43, where Jesus says, Why do you not understand what I am saying? Uh, what I am saying? Is it because you cannot hear my word? Clearly those to whom Jesus spoke heard his words, but they didn't understand their meaning. 
Likewise, given that this seeming contradiction appears within the same work written by the same author, and given that the word can refer to both simple hearing and a kind of hearing that involves understanding, there is no reason to insist on a contradiction here unless you are absolutely married to the assumption that the Bible is false. The second seeming contradiction appears between Luke's account of Paul's conversion and Paul's description given to King Agrippa. In Acts chapter 9, verse 7, Luke writes, The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. But in Acts 26, verse 14, Paul said, And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice. So it would appear that Luke's account depicts Paul and his companions standing, whereas Paul tells King Agrippa that they had all fallen. Again, let's remember that this is the same author recording both Paul's experience and Paul's description of the experience. It seems very unlikely that Luke would not notice the contradiction in what he was writing. First, there's absolutely nothing in Luke's description of the event itself that says Paul's companions didn't fall to the ground. There's nothing to prevent us from understanding that they fell to the ground with Paul initially, but then arose and stood motionless and speechless. This is one perfectly reasonable solution to the apparent contradiction. Second, the Greek word rendered stood in Luke's description of the event is a word that does not necessarily refer to standing in the sense we understand it to mean. In Matthew 12:26, Jesus asked, If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? In Matthew 18:16, he quoted the Old Testament saying, By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. The meaning of this Greek word then in Jesus' words above has to do with being firm or established. Uh, the lexicon list says one of its definitions, to make firm, to fix, to establish, and to cause a person or a thing to keep his or its place. Therefore, um, as Countering Biblical Contradictions puts it, as for the stance of Paul's companions, Haley notes, the word rendered stood also means to be fixed, to be rooted to the spot. Hence, the sense may be not that they stood erect, but that they were rendered motionless or fixed to the spot by overpowering fear. So, either way, whether Paul's companions fell to the ground and then stood, or whether they fell to the ground and were rooted to the spot, there's, again, no reason to insist that there is a contradiction here. The third alleged contradiction that I mentioned is uh, regarding Paul's conversion between Luke's account and something Paul said in his letter to the Corinthians. In Acts chapter 9, verse 8, Luke writes, Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him to Damascus. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, Paul writes, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And then again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8, he says, And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So it would seem that Luke depicts Paul as rising from the ground blind, unable to see anything. But Paul tells the Corinthians that he did see Jesus, that Jesus appeared to him. The alleged contradictions we looked at before were written by the same author, but we don't have that same luxury here, because Luke authored the book of Acts, but Paul is the author of the letter to the Corinthians. But in reality, this is again not a contradiction at all. It doesn't even really appear to be. It seems pretty clear to me that while other passages are more difficult to harmonize, this is an example of skeptics grasping at straws, throwing mud at the Bible and hoping it sticks. Here's a more complete quotation of Luke's account of Paul's conversion. This is Acts chapter 9, verses 3 to 8. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing, and leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. 
You see, it is not until Paul rises that he is blind. Certainly he and his companions saw the heavenly light which flashed around him. In fact, he says as much. He says, But it happened that as I was on my way, approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me, and those who were with me saw the light to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. That was in Acts chapter 22, verses 6 to 9. Uh, verses six to nine. And then again in Acts twenty-six thirteen, he says, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. It is evident that the light Paul saw was the risen Jesus Christ. Paul didn't say he saw Jesus in the form of a man, just that he saw him. It's unreasonable to insist that this is a contradiction simply because Luke says Paul saw a light and not a human form. But what makes the skeptics claim additionally absurd is that when Paul recounts his experience, he says he saw Jesus again later. In Acts chapter 22, verses 11 to 18, he says, But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. A certain Ananias said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one, and to hear an utterance from his mouth. It happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance, and I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. Ananias prophesied that Paul would see Jesus, and sure enough, Paul saw him in Jerusalem. So at his conversion, Paul saw Jesus appear in the form of a bright light, and later he again saw Jesus, this time presumably in human form, in a vision. At least twice then, Paul saw the risen Lord. And so Paul's words in his letter to the Corinthians is not a contradiction at all. Now, I'm going to make this episode short. Um, we're at about 33 minutes now, and I'm only going to talk for another minute or two. What I want to explain to you, what I want to leave you with is this. The very clear and coherent answers that I've given to these contradictions are nothing new. They've been around for a long time, and anybody who has serious, seriously looked into them is aware of the answers. They may find the answers unsatisfactory, and, you know, that's perfectly fine. I think they're being unreasonable. The point is, it is patently false to say that it has been proven that the Bible contains numerous errors, which atheists and skeptics and uh, liberals often do. But that is simply a factual error. Just because you aren't satisfied by the answers Christians give does not mean that any such thing has been proven. There are a great many more alleged contradictions to examine, and, and we will in future episodes. But I want you to remember all this as we continue to look at them. A few are somewhat difficult to harmonize, but the vast majority are very easy, and were harmonized very easily and logically long ago. If someone tells you that the Bible has been proven to contain numerous errors, simply ask for specifics, jot them down, and ask him if he's willing to allow you to respond after you've looked into them. If you'd like help, you can email me at theapologetics at hotmail.com, or you can just do a little bit of research on the internet, and I guarantee you, you'll find the answer. Do not worry or be nervous. As we've seen, the bark of skeptics is bigger than their bite, and their bite is very weak. The Word of God, the Bible, does indeed contain the very words of God, breathed out onto the pages of Scripture through the men he inspired to write exactly what he wanted them to. And because God is perfectly true and cannot contradict himself, you can trust what the Bible says. I hope you've been encouraged by what you've listened to. We'll look at more contradictions in the future. And until then, I hope that you'll join me for the next episode of the Theapologetics Podcast. Until then...